Thank you so much, music team. And thanks for those great praises. It's so encouraging to hear how God's working in our lives. Um, I think praise time is one of my favorite things that we do every week. My name is Misty Denman, and I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team. And I'm glad you're here with us today, too, on this beautiful fall morning to study God's Word together. Each of the four gospel writers had a unique take on the life and ministry of Jesus. One of the special emphasis in the book of Luke is that Jesus came to offer his kingdom both to his chosen people, the Jews, and to the Gentile nations as well. And we've also learned in our study this fall that Luke is careful to point out how much God loves and cares for those on the fringes of society. We've learned that he loves the underdog, women, those outside the religious community. And these truths are reflected in the title of our study, Jesus the Savior for One and All. Luke is also careful to point out the humanity of Jesus. And in this gospel, he's often called the Son of Man. And one of the ways that his humanity is really illuminated for us is by all of the times we read where Jesus was a man of prayer. Jesus also, or Luke also makes it clear that each of us that has a relationship with Jesus has that great privilege of talking to God. And that is what prayer is. It is communication with the living God. And as unfathomable as it is, the God of the universe gives us his heart and is listening to us at all times. Well, being both fully man and fully God, one might guess that Jesus didn't need to pray when he was on earth, but actually the opposite was true. Jesus spent much personal time in prayer, and he was also very deliberate in teaching his disciples how to pray, and he even gives us and them a model prayer to use as a guide. I recently did a quick Amazon search for books on prayer, and when I put prayer in the book title search, 89,670 different titles came up on prayer. I was astonished. That is a lot of words and a lot of ideas about what prayer is, what it's for, what we can expect to happen as we pray. And out of those 89,000 plus books, I'm sure there are lots of great thoughts, and I'm sure there are a number that are not. But today, we aren't concerning ourselves with any of those authors Instead, we get to learn from the Word of God and the Master himself about what he has to teach us about prayer. On your outline, Jesus shows us how to pray by his own example. In our homework, we looked at many of the times Luke records Jesus praying. In chapter 5, at a point early in his public ministry, Jesus was traveling, proclaiming to Israel that he was God's son and the promised Messiah. And at the same time, he was performing many miraculous healings to authenticate his claims as being Messiah. At this point, he was well-liked. The crowds were surrounding him. And there were, there, people just could not get enough of him. He was very busy in extreme demand. And still, he frequently carved out time to withdraw from both his friends and the crowds and get alone to pray. Jesus prayed intentionally and he prayed often in his own life. Look with me on your verse sheet at Luke 5, 15 and 16. 
Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So those crowds surrounding Jesus had tremendous need. And you know, as women, we know what it's like when there's just flat out more work to be done in a day than there are hours to do it. But Jesus did not let the demands of his work keep him from being a man of prayer. Even with all of that need and, surround, and, and humanity swirling around him, he did not just plow ahead thinking, when this work is done, then I'll go take some time and be alone with the Lord. Instead, he knew and he acted on the fact that the source of his strength for the work he needed to do was in his relationship with the Father. And so he very deliberately took the time necessary to be in communion with God, speaking and listening. And he found there what he needed to do to continue on loving and serving and ministering to those around him. Jesus just did not let his demanding lifestyle and and busyness prevent him from being a man whose life was marked by frequent prayer. And neither should we. Like Jesus, we can make prayer a priority in our life no matter what is going on. In fact, I think the more we have going on, the more we better be praying because Abiding in Christ is our only lasting source of the strength and the wisdom and the energy we need um, to go on with doing what we need to do. And I think that's true when these big things in life are going on, and it's equally true in just the daily grind of life. For Christ followers, it's our relationship with God that matters most in this world. And we know that in any good, loving relationship, there's going to be a lot of communication. And in those good, loving relationships, we don't communicate with one another out of obligation. We talk to each other because we want to be known and we want to know that other person. The kind of prayer that Jesus practiced and that we get to practice too is a natural outflow of that intimate, loving relationship we have with God. Look with me on your verse sheet at 1 John 3.1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. We are his children, and he loves us, and we get to talk to him about anything and at any time, and that is a truly awesome privilege. Jesus also teaches us to pray by his example when we see him praying on the night before he chose his 12 disciples. So look with me again on your verse sheet at Luke 6, 12 and 13. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Prior to this day when he chose the 12, Jesus had a wide number of followers who traveled with him, who had professed their faith in him, and who were learning from him. Out of those, that crowd of followers, he chose just 12 who he would very deliberately pour his life into for the remainder of his ministry, who would spend more time with him than anyone else on earth, and who, after his death and resurrection, would be the ones who would take the gospel to the ends of the earth and literally change history. So choosing who those 12 would be out of the crowd was important. 
On the eve of such an important decision, the scripture records that Jesus spent the night on the mountainside praying to God. And isn't it striking that that is the only action that the scripture records him taking on the eve of that night? We don't see Jesus fretting about the decision. We don't see him showing any anxiety. We don't see him showing any nervousness. He just went off and he prayed. And when morning came, he chose. Look with me on your verse sheet at Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It is God's word and our prayerful dependence on him that leads us to make wise decisions. Let's look at one other significant prayer in the life of Jesus. Turn with me now in your Bibles to Luke 22. I'll be reading verses 39 through 44 so you can follow along with me. We're skipping ahead now chronologically in the life of Jesus to the night of his arrest before he went to the cross. And then we'll move backwards after this section to chapter 11. So this is Jesus um, praying on the Mount of Olives, starting in verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. In verse 41, notice that Jesus knelt down to pray. It was a common practice in Jesus' time to stand while you prayed. So even in this scene, we see that Jesus' physical posture shows one of humility, dependence, and submission to his Father. The scene on the night of Jesus' arrest is deeply emotional. And for me, I think, portrays one of the most deeply human pictures of Jesus that we get in all of the scriptures. Look back with me in verse 42. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. The cup that Jesus speaks of here is a symbol of the suffering that was coming on the cross. In anticipation of that coming suffering, he asks his father if there is another way for God's purposes to be accomplished. But even in that same sentence where he says, not my will, but yours be done, Jesus is plainly and honestly telling the Father what his desires are, and there's really no reason not to be totally honest. But in that same breath that he expresses his desire that things be different, um, and for God to accomplish his purpose in some other way, he submits his own desires to that of the Father. Even in this thing, the anticipation of the cross, he is able to submit his will to God's. So what makes it possible for here for Jesus to submit his will to the fathers in this very difficult thing? Remember all the times in our reading this week in our homework where we see Jesus getting alone to pray. 
All of that time he has spent in his life cultivating his relationship with the Father, learning to trust God entirely, has enabled him to tell God yes, no matter what it is that God is asking of him. God did not take that cup of suffering from him on that night. But because Jesus was willing to submit to what the Father asked of him, every one of us now gets to have an opportunity to be forgiven of our sins and have a relationship with the Lord forever. So this hard path is one that Jesus would be asked to take. But notice in verse 43 that as he says, your will be done, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Because we live in a fallen world, we are going to face hard times. But God is faithful to strengthen us and shelter us when we ask for his help. Look with me on your verse sheet at Nahum 1.7. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. So how is it that we can really trust God in all things, especially when life is difficult or confusing? We can trust God in all things when we pursue him through his word and when we pursue him through prayer and when we're steeped in his word, constantly talking to him and listening to him. We get to know him so well that we start to have no doubt that he is good and that he really can be trusted no matter what our circumstances look like to us. Look again on your verse sheet at 1 John 4. God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is a God who is worthy of our trust. Just like Jesus, we can and should openly acknowledge what our wants and desires are for our lives. And just like Jesus, we can then say, but not my will, but yours be done. And when we submit to his will, we can be confident that his love for us is complete and his plans for us are good. As we observe Jesus um, in Luke, we learn from his personal example that we can intentionally submit to God and his will for our lives. So after having gleaned these great truths by observing the personal prayers of Jesus, we now get to learn from him by a model prayer that he taught his disciples. On your outline, Jesus models an ideal prayer. Turn back in your Bibles with me now to Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 1. And let's follow along. I'll be reading verses 1 through 4. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation." Having had many opportunities to watch and hear Jesus pray, the disciples wanted to know how to pray like he did. Something about the way Jesus prayed was different from what they had heard before. 
And what follows is what's commonly known to us as the Lord's Prayer. Right away at the beginning of this prayer, we notice the very familiar way that Jesus addresses God as Father. The Aramaic term he uses there is Abba, which could be translated as Dear Father. And Jesus was God's Son and had a unique claim on calling God the Father. But when we trust Christ and we are adopted into his family as children of God, we get to call him Father in that very same way. Jesus continues praying in verse 2 by saying, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Hallowed be your name is essentially a statement of worship and a way of approaching God as the holy and living God in a very deserving manner. It expresses a desire that God be acknowledged as holy and as authority all the earth, and it is a fitting statement of reverence and respect as we begin prayers. Your kingdom come expresses the desire that God's glory and authority would be realized over all the earth. Jesus was born into this world to offer his kingdom to anyone who would trust in him. But we won't see the completion of his kingdom until the day he returns to earth. In the meantime, when we pray your kingdom come, we're voicing our desire that those who don't know him would come to a saving faith in him. And we're eagerly looking forward to that very real day when he does return to earth and make all things right. So this beginning section of the Lord's Prayer focuses our heart on God himself and seeks the things of the Lord and his kingdom. And this is a great way to begin any of our own prayers. In the remainder of the prayer, we get to look to God to meet our needs. Give us each day our daily bread is a straightforward request that God would provide the nourishment needed for the day. In ancient times, workers were paid by the day as work was available. There weren't weekly or bi-weekly or whatever paychecks. And there also wasn't any Mrs. Baird's bread that would keep in your pantry for two weeks at a time. So there truly was a need to ask God and to trust God to provide for your very basic everyday shelter and food and clothing. And so in our world today, it's sort of hard, I think, to relate to that need to look to God for those daily things. But surely we have daily needs as well. What is it that you need daily from God? Is it patience? Is it wisdom? Is it hope? Is it the ability to forgive? Is it love for someone, we all have needs that we can come to God for each and every day and trust him to provide. And God wants us to live in daily dependence on him today just as he did then. And he's eager to meet our needs when we look to him in that way. Forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who sins against us is not a prayer of salvation here. The disciples that he taught this prayer to already had a saving faith in him as their Messiah. So instead of this being a prayer of salvation, it's instead a prayer of confession of those daily sins. This kind of daily and sometimes a lot more often than that confession of our sins restores our fellowship with God that sin can sometimes get in the way of. In the same way that unconfessed sin can get in the way of our earthly relationships, it can sort of get in the way of our fellowship with God. 
So when we stop and confess our sin, we're telling God what he already knows. We're agreeing with him that it was wrong, and we're asking him to help us turn our back on that thing that we have done. As we realize how completely we've been forgiven of all our sins, we're then able to forgive others. And I think by including forgiveness in this very short prayer, Jesus makes a strong case for the importance that he places on our willingness to forgive others. Finally, let's talk about and lead us not into temptation. This statement is not a suggestion that God tempts us to sin. We know that for sure by reading James 1, 13, and 14 on your verse sheet. Look with me there now. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he is dragged away and enticed. So in light of this verse in James, lead us, not into, lead us not into temptation, is a request that God would provide his help and help so that we can avoid situations that entice us to sin. And this, again, would be a prayer that would serve me well every day. We can repeat the Lord's Prayer verbatim when we need help in knowing what words to pray. And the words of this prayer also serve as a great road map for us. If we are praying along the lines of desiring the things of God in this world, depending on God to meet our daily needs, asking for his help and avoiding situations that lead us into sin, confessing the sin that we do and forgiving others, then we can be confident that we are praying along lines that are pleasing to God. The author Philip Yancey in one of his books describes the Lord's Prayer as a way for believers to keep it honest, keep it simple, and keep it up. Let's continue on with the Savior's lessons for us in Luke 11. On your outline, Jesus instructs our practice of prayer. Follow along with me as I read now verses 5 through 10 in Luke 11. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. So this parable that Jesus teaches comes immediately on the hill heels of having taught the Lord's Prayer. So he gives us this model prayer, and now he's telling us about sort of what our heart and attitude should be as we pray. This situation that the two friends in this parable find themselves in would have been very attention-catching to Jesus' audience. And the culture of this time and place Hospitality mattered, and so it would have been unthinkable for even an unexpected guest to arrive at your home and for you to be caught without a good meal to offer him. And if a hungry visitor shows up late at night, it is not okay to lay out some leftovers from dinner the night before. It would have been your duty and your honor to provide fresh, full loaves of bread to feed your company. So when this homeowner is caught without what he needs and he runs to his neighbor in serious need of a bailout, there is no doubt that that neighbor in bed understands the gravity of the issue. 
But he and his family are already in bed, and he just doesn't want to be bothered. I sort of think he probably had, like, babies or a toddler or something that had just gotten to sleep, and there was no way he was waking them up. But the homeowner knows that he's without, and he goes right on asking for what he needs because there is no other way to get what he needs in the middle of the night. And in verse 8, we see he is given what he needs because he asks boldly. So what is it that we're to learn from this parable? Jesus wants us to approach prayer in the same way that the homeowner approached the neighbor, with boldness, with persistence, and with shamelessness. When faced with a need, his reaction is simple and it's straightforward. He goes immediately to where he can get help. He asks for what he needs, and he keeps on asking for it until he gets what he came for. It's very important to note here that Jesus is not comparing God the Father to the reluctant neighbor who doesn't really feel like helping out, but eventually does. Instead, he's contrasting the character of God to that neighbor. The neighbor doesn't want to be bothered, but eventually does give in. In complete contrast to that response, God loves us and cares for us more than we can imagine. And he wants to be asked and he wants to meet our needs. So anyone who has ever walked with God for any length of time has discovered that sometimes our prayers are answered in exactly the way and the timing that we hoped for. And sometimes they're not. And the truth is, on this side of heaven, I think there will always be some mystery as to why some fervent prayers are answered in our timing and in our way, and why sometimes they seem not to be. So the question is, how do we not lose faith when our prayers aren't answered the way we want them to be? In those kind of tough situations, I think we must rely on who we know about who God is and who the character of God is. So look with me on your verse sheet at Psalm 36, 7 and 8. How priceless is your unfailing love. Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drinks from your river of delights. We can pray boldly and without shame because God is gracious and he is kind and he is generous and he is willing and able to care for us. And based on who he is and what we already know of his great love for us, we can trust him in whatever way it is that he responds to our prayers. Look back once more on your verse sheet at that next verse in Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The truth is, he is God, and he is good, and he is worthy of our faith. Look back with me again, and let's reread verses 9 and 10. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened to him. Okay, keep these verses in mind and let me tell you a true story. I got a new car this summer. After nine years of having driven a minivan that we got um, 
when my oldest was about a year and a half old and I was pregnant with our second, it had taken us all the way through um, infancy, toddlerhood, all the way to the end of elementary school. And in the last few years, I'd spent a lot of time in a mechanic's office with us. And this summer, we realized it was just time to get something new. And so after much sort of study and deliberation and going back and forth about what we should do about this and how we should do it, I finally got a new car at the beginning of July, and I was thrilled. One week to the day after I got that new car, as I was pulling out of a parking space in a parking lot, I backed into someone who was pulling out directly across from me. Now, if these verses that say, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you, mean that genie, that God is something like a genie in the bottle, I promise you in those minutes after that crash happened, time would have backed up five minutes and I would have gotten a redo and I never would have had to call my husband who had just the week before spent extra money on a car with a backup camera and tell him... (laughs) And tell him that I had already managed to mangle this car. And I am telling you, there was more damage done than you would have thought possible going five miles an hour. It didn't look that bad, but it was really expensive. But anyway, none of you will be surprised to know I did not get a redo. Time did not back up. I didn't get another chance to pay more attention and um, use that backup camera I had. So if it isn't true that these verses mean that God is obliged to give us anything we ask for or need, what do they mean? These words of Jesus tell us where our hearts should be as we pursue God. And they give us this great promise about how God will respond to us when we pursue him. To begin with, look in verse 10. And the everyone that Jesus refers to are believers. It it are people that are part of his family. So keep that in mind that Jesus is speaking only to his people here. And on the heels of this parable where Jesus encourages us to pray boldly and persistently, he also tells us plainly, prayerfully ask for what you need, but seek the face of God and pursue knowing him and knock on the door of his kingdom, desiring him above all else. And when we pursue God in his kingdom, we have the promise in his word that we will find him. Look with me on your verse sheet at Matthew 6, 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. This is Jesus speaking on the Sermon on the Mount. And I think it's key to understanding what Jesus means by these words of ask, seek, and knock. Jesus is saying that our highest and best priority is to seek God himself and his kingdom And then rest in the assurance that God will provide the rest of what we need as well. And because he's such a gracious God, the truth is a lot of time he just gives us what we desire too. The verb tense of ask, seek, and knock in the original language speaks of an ongoing habitual action, not just a one-time thing. So we're to continuously seek God himself in all that we do. And even think back with me at the Lord's Prayer that we just talked about. And notice how this truth is reflected there. Jesus begins his prayer with, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And then he asks for what our daily needs are. This would be a good pattern for all of us to follow as well. Look back with me once more at your verse sheet at 1 Thessalonians 5. 
Be joyful always, pray continuously, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I love it when God's will is so plainly spelled out for us. How is it that we can be joyful always? How can we find, we can find joy by going back to the promise that when we seek God, we'll find him. And that there is no better thing than knowing God and being known by him. Finally, Jesus ends this teaching on prayer with another short parable about a father. So follow along with me as I read Luke 11, 11 through 13. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, would give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, would give him a scorpion? If you then, though you were evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So almost any father wants the very best for his children and out of love tries to provide that for them. And if that is true of sinful man, imagine how much true it is of God in his role to us as father. God both desires for and has the means to provide his very best for us. In verse 13, Jesus tells his disciples that God will even provide the Holy Spirit for those who ask him. This might not seem like a very big deal to us as we read it today. You might remember from the book of Acts early on in chapter 2 that after Jesus was resurrected, there was a day of Pentecost where from that point on all believers were given the Holy Spirit. And so those of us who know and love the Lord today have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. But in the Old Testament, before that day of Pentecost, God could give and also remove his Holy Spirit from people. It was not a given that you would have his Spirit in you. So here Jesus is explaining that in addition to meeting our physical needs, God gives us the very best spiritual gifts as well. So since we already have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, for us those good spiritual gifts are things like love, joy, peace, patience, wisdom, hope. Look with me on your verse sheet at Philippians 4.19. And my God will meet all your needs according to the glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Now turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 18. Here we'll learn another parable that encourages wholehearted prayer. We'll be reading Luke 18, 1 through 8. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men, And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So Jesus is continuing his ongoing theme here of praying faithfully and pursuing God without giving up. In the earlier parable with the homeowner who asks his neighbor for bread, 
there was a contrast between the character of God and the character of that homeowner and not a comparison. The same thing is true here. There's not a comparison but a contrast set up between the unrighteous judge and who God is. Jesus is using a bad example to teach us a good lesson. In the culture that Jesus lived in, a a widow would have been in a very vulnerable and needy position And looking for needed legal protection, her only source of help is this unrighteous judge who really doesn't care about her. Nevertheless, because she persistently pled her case before him, he eventually gives her the justice she's looking for. Like that widow, there will be times as believers when we face injustice and hardship just by living in a fallen world. Here in America, with all of our freedoms and our really very good legal system, I think it's sometimes hard to put ourselves in the shoes of this woman. But we have brothers and sisters living all over the world today for whom injustice and persecution are very um, real things that are happening to them because they're believers living in a fallen world. And I think we even see some of that pushback today as uh, the church and the culture are becoming more and more at odds with one another. So this parable really is very applicable to us as well. In the face of whatever injustice we may face now or in the future, We are to be like that widow who persistently pled her case before the judge. I read in one commentary that there was a common Jewish teaching at this time that one should pray three times and only three times per day. And any more praying than that and you're just sort of pestering God. Nothing could be further from the truth. He's taught us consistently um, in, in everything we've read today that he wants us to come to him at all times. And because of God's great love for us, and because we're his children, and he is our father, he wants us to talk to him all the time and wants us to persist in looking to him to meet our needs. The widow in this parable did not give up on her case until she got the justice she was looking for. And like that righteous judge, God delights in hearing from us, and he promises quick justice. But here's what we need to know when we read about God's quick justice. God's idea of quick and our idea of quick are not always the same thing. Okay, here's my idea of quick. The Chick-fil-A drive-thru. I can drive up there at lunch. Cars are wrapped twice around the building. And somehow in a matter of minutes, I am at the window with a perfect order. Somebody's smiling at me. And, you know, it's just a few minutes. God's timing is not like a well-run fast food drive-thru. It is our job, because God is perfect and because his timing is perfect, to trust in him even when his timing is far slower than our flesh wishes it would be. On your verse sheet, read John 16, 33. It's the very bottom verse. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus will return to earth one day and he will bring justice with him. We are already promised that we are on that winning side. In the meantime, waiting on God's timing is a demonstration of our faith. And when the Son of Man returns, he will find faithfulness on the earth because his children have continued praying and have not given up. Isn't that going to be a great day? Jesus is an amazing teacher. At his feet, 
we can live a life of faithful and continuous prayer, placing our hope in Him alone. And in light of what we learned today, I think there's no better thing for us to do right now than bow our heads. So let me close us in prayer. Lord God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you have made a way for us to have a relationship with you. I pray as we go here today that we would revel in the fact and that we get to talk to you all the time. I pray that we would trust you fully, Lord, and um, expectantly wait on you to meet all of our needs. In your holy name we pray, amen.